Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tori Gates. The world of Victorian-era England comes to life in adventurous steampunk fiction in Gearheart because freedom is worth the risk. Female adventurers, inventions, robots, an old rival, and an unusual race of beings come from the pen of Michelle Young, an artist, creator of paintings, collectibles, and stories. Michelle joins us from Dallas, Texas. Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, I have to just begin with, to me, was this wondrous step out in creativity. Uh, what inspired Gearheart? What moved you to write this? So this story was actually um, inspired. Uh, it came to me in a dream one night when I was in high school. Um, and the funny thing was, um, have you ever heard of Neopets? Yes, I have. Uh, that, the game, the figures in that, uh, how, like, some of them look like bears with these big old curly ears, and they could have wings or these long, long tails or something like that, and they were, the uh, like, multicolored. Um, I don't know. It's just I always loved them, and somehow they became the dimmies in the story, but I took my own spin on them and uh, changed a few of their styles. But, yeah, they were definitely a big inspiration on it. <laughs> well, I, I definitely want to ask that. a little more oh. about – oh, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, other than that, I would have to say that, like, Harriet Tubman, she was a huge inspiration for me because it's a lot – It's like it, they had to be uh, saved but in a very secret way. So it was kind of like the Underground Railroad that my main characters were building uh, for these dimmies, these slaves in their society. Mm-hmm. Well, you take us immediately at the start of the book to 1848. Tell us about what brings us to England and where is Curlon, England? Curlion is actually a fictional area of, uh, of England that I made up because – there, I looked up some of the most beautiful places in England, but none of them amounted to what I saw in my dream. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to just have to make up a place for it <laughs> and put it somewhere on the map of London, of England, sorry. Um, but yeah, Curlion is uh, this very high end in fashion and inventions uh, port city in uh, northern England. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a rival for uh, the invention side with London because it's such a big city and all kind of stuff. But, yeah. 
Brilliant. And the Victorian era began around 1820, if I remember my history. What made this period of time significant to you? I just really, really love it. Um, it's a, it's interesting because when you go back, you actually see how inventive they were with so many different things um, and how dangerous those things actually were. So it's kind of crazy uh, to see and think of what you can actually make of them uh, and what I saw in my dream as well. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there was a hat, and it, it was so cool because it had a clock in it, and the clock would, uh, the clock's face would come out, and a cuckoo bird would shoot out and save the time and then shoot back in. And that <laughs> might have been one of my favorite uh, things. I want that hat so bad <laughs> for myself. Uh, but, yeah, it's. It's so much fun to be in the Victorian England and have a steampunk adventure because you can do so much, uh, but you can also use so much of what they've already given you in history. And that's one of the fun things about we're creating our own little universes here, but we can base them in some reality, right? And that was was one of the cool things. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, for the most part, I wanted to make the history as plausible as possible to, like, our history. But, of course, like, the Dimmies, they're coming from a different dimension. That's obviously not accurate <laughs> to ours. But, yeah, other than that, there is a lot of things that are still accurate to our own. And where did you find uh, – Where did what kind of research did you do? I had to do – in my writing, I have to do quite a bit of research to gain sort of an access to what's another country's history or another land's history, but also their customs and so forth. What, where did you look? What did you draw on? Oh, I had to look up a lot of things for this. Research was definitely a part of it. Um, I had to look up currency, what the difference in, like, a farthing, uh, a half penny, a shilling, all that kind of stuff was, um, and the currency of the times, how much things were worth, because there was a gem that they get a hold of, and they need to know how expensive it is. And it's like, okay, what would that be in this time period? Like, I don't know. Um, so there's that, uh, how they talk, their mannerisms. Uh, what's mm-hmm. allowed for men and women in the same room? It's like they had to be how many feet apart? How what can they talk about? All kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to warp the fashion sense a little bit, so I was making it allowed for women to actually show their stockinged legs, um, mm-hmm. like with an asymmetrical skirt, but nothing too flashy, of course. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And uh, split skirts. I added that into the mix because uh, my girls needed to run. So it's like, okay, they're not going to run in dresses. Not today. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the other interesting things, too, and actually that leads to – that lends to the characters, to the the female heroines, uh, Aspen and Lori. Um, Sort of – there's a sort of feminism in you know, sort of like Victorian era feminism for these two ladies in terms of they're doing things that perhaps 
women were not expected to be able to do or in, sadly to say intelligent enough to be able to do and yet they push those boundaries quite a bit and sometimes you have to do that you have to take the creative license or you have to or, or your characters don't get anywhere and i have discovered that in my own writing is it, did you think that they might they they certainly push their own boundaries oh they pushed their they push it a bit too hard sometimes. You can tell uh, whenever you read the book, you can see, okay, they've gotten a little too far. They've gotten to exhaustion or they may have uh, gone beyond the wall a bit too much. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, for the most part, they're able to play their hand very well with their own strengths. And I really wanted to show that how in if for those feminists out there and for anyone uh, who's not, it's like, being a strong woman or being a feminist doesn't mean uh, you're all rough and tough and it's like power, nothing like that. No, <laughs> it's being able to <laughs> being able to use your strengths, your God-given strengths to your own advantage um, to push yourself forward in life and mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that you and other women aren't oppressed as well. Uh, but in your own way. And Lori, uh, she is, Lori and Aspen are completely different in that sense, which I love because Lori loves to dance. She's very feminine. Um, She loves dresses, all kinds of stuff. And she loves going to balls and being around guys and flirt with them. But she's still, um, she's able to kick people's butts. Um, she's able to save people, and she's very nurturing. She's very motherly, motherly-like, which helps a lot whenever they are caring for the Dimmies and trying to send them home. Uh, she's a very strong character in that because she's also able to help her sister whenever she's working way too hard and needs someone to look after her. While Aspen, mm-hmm. her sister, is she's very intelligent and she's very strong and she is the best fighter but she doesn't like dresses or anything like that she's rather um introverted so she isn't fond of balls but um Mm -hmm. she has um she has the knowledge and strength to lead her and everyone else in where they need to go um but she still is kind that's the important thing. Um, yeah, it's just I really wanted to show strong women in all different aspects because those are the main two, but the one that I really love is Winona. She's one of the Demis, and she is the caretaker of everyone in the household, including the rest of the slaves that they save. She's behind the scenes making sure everybody is okay and fed and cleaned and all kind of stuff, and without her, they wouldn't be able to function. So mm-hmm. I wanted to show it's like, yes, your role is important no matter what you do because um, you have no idea how much it helps other people. That's true. And that's one of the really interesting things is you've, you've answered uh, you answered a couple of questions I had. Um, I want oh. to specifically <laughs> want to look. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I was laughing. It's like, oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I definitely want to ask about Aspen first a little bit more. She does seem to be more the leader, and yes, we talk about her being uh, more hard-charging. And as you said, Lori, a little more traditional in sort of the perception, 
But at the same time, what was really fascinating was how different these two young ladies are, and yet they're from the same they're the same family, they're the same bloodline, and they have this they have their own chemistry. Um, can you tell us a little now? It seems like their father had a hand in a lot of this. Tell us a little about their history and their backstory, which led them up to uh, 1880s, uh, I think it's 1886, when they're starting to go out and about here. All right, so here are my girls' backstory. <laughs> so whenever cool. they were kids, um, there was a plague in England, um, which is also very relevant to the time because that Victorian England was not clean. So plagues mm-hmm. and sickness were kind of big back then. Um, but their mother, they lost due to the plague, and they both had caught a smaller strain, which left them with a few scars. Um, they survived. Um, after the mom left, they it was only their father and them playing around um, and living in their house uh, with a few uh, demi-slaves that actually her father was able to make pretty much free they're able to retire whenever they get to a certain age um and they have kind of like a stipend to of money to have every month uh to live on until they actually die so that was something that their father was able to make for them but whenever aspen and lori were i want to say 13 and 12 because they're only one year apart. So Aspen was 13 and they actually went into their father's, uh, what is it, laboratory. Uh, He's actually an inventor and he was trying to make this machine that eventually became Gearheart, which is the machine to send the Demis back to their dimension. Uh, That's not a spoiler. You'll find that out real soon. Don't worry. But yeah, so uh, seeing as how Aspen was able to fix a few things without any instruction, really, she was just able to get it. Um, Her father uh, took interest in that, and he decided, okay, let's see if she can do anything else, unless she can help me with this. And eventually they were able to build uh, this multidimensional transporter, and they it broke due to somebody else, and ever since then, she's been making it herself. But let's see here. They, once their father died recently, they've been having to go from family to family and uh, in their family. And every single time they find out what's going on, they shoo them away uh in the night and they have to go to another family's house. Well, finally they get to, um, they get to their uncle's house and their, their cousins were acrobats in a circus and that's who taught them uh, how to fight and how to uh, jump from building to building due to acrobatics. As their uncle, he taught them how to play poker, so strategy. He taught them mm-hmm. how to sword fight, and he taught them so many different things. He was also a closet chemist, unbeknownst to his uh, son, who actually was the one who sent the girls away next. So they had a chance to learn a lot of things from even just their family. 
and so we have now like these really interesting characters which is which is cool um the uh, sort of an antagonist a little bit is is the next place they end up which uh, Keegan Myrak is the son of I guess a gentleman of wealth but he has his own backstory and I and Aspen clearly doesn't particularly like or trust him it seems no, she's not too fond of him because of their history when they were children. They actually knew him as a kid, and he was kind of a brat, not to lie, not gonna lie. <laughs> um, but he's grown a lot since then. However, his reputation isn't too nice. He's he's kind of a playboy and a bit of a flirt with girls. So, yeah, as one of my friends would put it, he's a punk. He's just a straight up punk. <laughs> But he has a really kind heart, and he's actually um, very open-minded in many ways uh, throughout the story whenever you get to know him more. I don't want to say too much about him because he's a big mystery part of the story. But I will say this. He lost his mother like the girls did, and but instead of getting closer to his father like the girls, he kind of grew even more distant it did seem that there was there were reasons there was there was uh, his own story kind of does come out in Gearheart and yes I don't want to give any of it away either now this is really interesting and then we we talked briefly about Winona and the Demis um, let's have a little more of their history what we know what they are about we know where they're descended from so to speak but uh, what brought them into slavery what has uh, and and uh, they certainly show their use, but what has happened to them that brought them into this situation? Okay, so this is in, I would say, the prologue of the book, so I'm not giving away too much. This is the first thing you read. But like I said before, there was a plague, and it was in, started in around 1842 um, that wiped out the lower class and a lot of the middle class and a little bit of the first uh, high class society but because the lower class was like so sparse they needed the workers but there are so few to do the amount of jobs that were needed to do to function to make society function they had to look elsewhere and in this world they are against human slavery so they wouldn't go to africa like they had in our own uh, history mm-hmm. but instead they somehow got the plans to make a make a, a window into another dimension uh, to find uh, free labor, you could say, and they did eventually after an accident in uh, in the warehouse that the machine was being built. So many people were trying to find a way to uh, fix the problem of the working class, and. <laughs> It's funny because a wedding ring made that change for them. I won't tell you how, but mm-hmm. it's like somehow that's the trigger that opened the portal to uh, – the name is actually going to come in the second book, so I can't tell you what the dimension is, but this window opens up and everyone can see these creatures working in kind of like a tropical environment. And they're working very hard. They're pulling carts of, like, 
of lumber, of stone to make huts with, and they're all very strong and flying around and uh, working on the ground. And the humans immediately go, oh, my gosh, we found it. We're saved. And it ends there. And next you go 40 years later and you see the entire uh, empire is filled with these dimmies of the working class. But by now, it's, it's, it's a problem because the working class is growing again. Mm-hmm. And we see that they need jobs and they're seeing a way, you know, there's no way of life for them. It's sort of, been, you know, here's the free labor that, that uh, they would rather replace, I guess. Exactly. And what happens when people don't have a job and they need to feed their family? They get desperate. And... Mm-hmm bad things happen so right yeah it's that's the thing that's kind of going on right now in their society and uh the girls uh are trying to kill two birds with one stone in a way Mm -hmm. there's sort of this this sort of abolitionist movement that they are they are spearheading in terms of they want to free the dummies they want to send them back to where they they should be and you know you would almost look at it and think that they're a little bit mad trying to do this all themselves but that's one of the things that makes the story so much fun is for me is that they totally believe we can do good things we can do great things and it's like better to go forth and fail than to do nothing at all and there seems to be a very strong moral bent about that especially with Aspen absolutely and Honestly, I feel like you'd have to be a little mad if you were going to do what they're doing. So, yeah, I guess they are a little crazy, but they very are they're just very loyal to their beliefs and they're very like steadfast in what they want to do and what they need to do or feel they need to do. Um so one thing I love about my girls um is their night outfits that they go um, out in the town and jumping over buildings, they're clad in all black, but they make their outfits look, have them look like men. So they play to the fact of that, even though they're feminists themselves. Mm-hmm. But it's also a disguise, and it's more practical. Exactly. And it's sort of like Batman or something like that. It's yeah. dark, you can't really tell. And they're moving about, the, you know, they're they're jumping about the buildings and 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 participating in that kind of thing, and it it just makes it exciting. I mean, it's it the tale was had so many different elements. We've talked about some of these. There's this very exciting swashbuckling story, and you don't let the action drop down for too much, which is kind of cool. That was something I was actually afraid of whenever I, whenever you go over your own story, you think, oh, no, there's not enough of this, there's not enough of that. Oh, they're going to get bored if they don't have this too soon. But, yeah, mm-hmm. I always want to make sure to keep people uh, on the edge of their seats, and I was so worried I was going to make them bored at some point. So I had to always ask my beta readers, it's like, okay, are you good here? Is it interesting? What's going on? <laughs> I was so nervous. Right. 
Well, that leads us to a good question of, of uh, the feedback that you got from people about these characters. I also loved some of the some of the uh, other characters were so larger than life, like Maisie the dressmaker, uh, Lady Pomley, and others. You also there's the thing you put work into the side characters, and I was like, did you draw on any specific personalities or people you knew? Because when I create characters, they tend to be amalgams of many people I know. And it's partly so that someone I know doesn't recognize a character as themselves. And then they come back on me and it's like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. I even put some of myself in my main characters. And, but yeah, Miss Maisie, I absolutely adore her. I'm actually going to be using her and uh, some family members of hers in the next book. So she's going to be coming back. So don't worry about that. Um <laughs> She'll be even larger than life then. And all the other characters, I wanted to make sure, whether they were side characters or if they were going to be in one little scene for just a second, I wanted to make sure they felt real. That was something that was so important to me in my book is I wanted the characters to feel real. I wanted any reader to feel like you were right beside them, feeling everything and seeing everything that they were going through. And... The side characters were so much fun because it's like, okay, what's the craziest person I can come up with? And I think that was Madame Pomley because she loves looking like a peacock, like an actual peacock. <laughs> she would don herself with feathers and her coat and have this big old bouffant hat. And she, <laughs> she, she's the funniest thing, I swear. But, yeah, I had so much fun with the side characters because I just get to – it's like painting somebody and – they're so colorful and mm-hmm. you don't have to put too much into them. Kind of like your main characters do like, Oh, they don't have to have a least favorite food or a, a little, a tick that they have or something like that. Um, they can just be very colorful people and you can know a little bit about them, but they could still feel alive. That's cool. Now you say a second book. Uh, what do what do you envision in terms of this of a series? How many? How far along are you? Do you think? So I have things planned out till book three, and because I've known so many authors that milk out their books, like it could be five books, it could be nine books, or even more, and mm-hmm. after. After, like, this, the few, like, maybe the fifth book or the fourth, it just gets to be too much, and it's kind of slow. Or, like, okay, they've used so many things, they don't know what to do anymore, so it's kind of like a creative laziness. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be like that, and I don't want to do a disservice like that to my story, especially since I wanted to make it as close to my dream as possible. And so I'm only going to do a trilogy for this just three books, that's it. And so, because I also have so many different ideas for other books, um, including children's books. So once this trilogy is over and I'm going to have to say goodbye to Care Heart, sadly, um, <laughs> I will need to be going to my next one. Yeah, I'm, I was in that same situation uh, with uh, basically searching for Roy Buchanan is my latest book, and that is the first of a series, and it wrote itself out very quickly. And the one thing that I've said is that 
I'm going to stop at the third book, partly because we cover a number of years in the characters' lives, and there's plenty of happenings and action, and there's there's the story. And I thought that at the third book, I'm going to stop for a while because my characters need to grow up, and they also need to take a breath. And Very true. The question, but you can't do too and, much to your characters or else they'll fall apart. Exactly. And I felt that they had, we got, and I had written beyond that. And I thought, well, I've got a book four and I've got a book five and I've got a compendium of different stories. And I'm looking at them and I'm like, well, okay, there's some, it's like, it's too thin. There's like a few areas here and there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions that haven't been answered. And so I'm kind of like, okay. So I figured, as I have said to people, if I stopped at the third book, it'd be a very nice ending and it would be reasonable. But the question then becomes, well, where do they go from there? And again, I have characters that I can't let go. So <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I, I, I've made a point of just saying, let's just let them, let them rest for a little while and then think up what they really need to do next as they grow older. And I think, and, and it's the same thing. I have other stories, I have other ideas, and we must go from there. Now, I guess back to you, um, is Gearheart your initial uh, publishing step, or was there something before that we have not heard about yet? Nope. Gearheart was my first ever book, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, but yeah, this is my first book ever that I have published, and I published it myself. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how do you feel, without telling us too much, uh, when do you anticipate the second one will be ready? That one, I'm actually 85,000 words in, a little over that, actually. And mm-hmm. it should, the rough draft, at least. So that one, I am planning on, whenever the rough draft is done, I'm planning on going all gung-ho, and I'm wanting to publish it this summer. So hopefully in June or maybe July, it will be out and ready to go. All right. Well, I guess, Michelle, we have to now go back to your beginnings. Tell us about, because you do so many other things, tell us about your origins, where you grew up, that sort of thing. Well, I grew up, I've been born and raised in Dallas, Texas, my whole life, and I love it here. I do wish I was closer to the sea, but I know the ocean around Texas is not exactly the prettiest. So, Mm -hmm. I don't know, pick and choose, can't have it all. Um, but, yeah, I love it here. Uh, the area I'm in is very nice. We have great neighbors. We have a great community. Um, I've made my best friends here, and uh, we always see each other and have picnics and stuff. Um, I do, however, want to say this. I grew up uh, with, and I still have them, of course, two learning disabilities uh, that actually hindered my writing. So publishing a book was something I actually laughed at, but just the idea mm-hmm. that whenever I was a bit younger, uh, my learning disabilities are ADHD and dysgraphia, which I means wanted to ask you to about that. Work. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, right. I have never, I have not heard of that. Tell us about that. So dysgraphia is actually a very rare learning disability and it's where the words in your head, it's, it's very hard for you to get them onto the page uh, to write them down, type them, or what have you. And it helps so much to dictate them out loud and someone just write them down. It's 
wonderful. And my mom and my dad were both huge helps, uh, a huge, great deal of help whenever I was in school for that, because I cannot tell you how many things I would have failed if not for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it always took me so much longer than other people to write anything or get anything done and, and tests projects, essays, no matter what it was, I always took like 50% over uh, more time to get things done than mm-hmm. normal people. So it's just like, okay. <laughs> and then here I do this and it's like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> well, what kind of, when were you first aware that this was a problem and what kind of treatments have you had? Is there any specific treatment or therapy available? Well, there's no cure. There's, I know that for sure, but there is medicine to help with like attention to help you focus a bit more. Um, I use Focalin. Some people use a bunch of different variety of medicine uh, mm-hmm. for attention, but other than that, um, I was going to therapy for it whenever I was in around fourth and fifth grade, but we stopped because it wasn't really helping. We were just like, oh, telling them if I was focusing or not, there wasn't anything else to it. Um, But yeah, in third grade, we finally figured out, okay, something's wrong. She's not able to get anything out. It's taking her a lot lot longer than uh, my brother who was able to do uh, homework just fine while for me I was going until bedtime or after bedtime I was still working on my homework from the moment I got home uh throughout dinner sometimes even so it was obviously a problem um finally got diagnosed and I went to private school for it that helped slightly but yeah eventually I went back to public school and I had to get accommodated time and notes from the professor uh just that kind of stuff and it definitely helped oh my goodness I would not have been able to get out of high school or (laughs) any grade level without uh time accommodation I wouldn't have been able to finish any of the tests or anything Mm -hmm. now was reading a difficulty as well? Is it like a retention thing or were you able to read and absorb things? It was more about the getting out your answers or what you wanted to say, right? Oh yeah. I was able to take things in easy and read. Uh, I loved reading. I was able to do uh, books all the time aside from my own school books, but it was the regurgitating part of it. It's like Tests mm-hmm. were very difficult for me to get the answers out and essays were just a nightmare to get this, getting anything down, um, especially whenever they are timed. Oh, my God. I have such mm-hmm. an anxiety for timed essays. It's ah, it's a nightmare. <laughs> well, having dealt with anxiety and depression all through my life without saying too much about it, I know the feeling. It's like you just feel under the gun, even if it's just started. And it's like, it's almost, it, it, it can be frightening at times, you know, and it's like almost paralyzing. You almost feel like your heart's going to be out of your chest. It's terrible. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, <laughs> well, there's that. And, um, but you do indicate you were writing to some extent early in life. What, I guess the first thing I really want to ask though is what, because what we read growing up always is 
uh, an inspiration or it's at least something that helps us along. What kind of things did you read growing up? What really took your fancy? Oh, man. I remember it was a children's book when I was a, I was a kid, and it's funny because it inspired me to be an artist and also to write and to also write children's books. It was The Secret mm-hmm. Garden of Claude Monet, and the oh, illustrator wow. did an amazing job for it. Uh, she really did a service to Claude, I think, but yeah, that one definitely inspired me in so many ways um, from when I was a kid. I absolutely adore that book. And other than that, whenever I was a bit older, I started reading a novel, of course. I would say Treasure Island. I adore that book. It's such a classic, and it's just it's mm-hmm. still one of my favorites. And I see that as part of this story here. It's part of Gearheart. I There's so much that was happening in it. I, I have to come back to this for a couple of reasons, but um, it was wondrous to like listen to um, these people talking. I felt like I was back there. And uh, there was these moments of just repartee. It's like, I felt like Arthur Conan Doyle was out drinking with P.G. Wodehouse. <laughs> and it was just... It was, it was just it was just at times hilarious, and at the same time it was a little bit preposterous, but at the same time, it just fit in really, really well and um I think I can see the the, the adventure of Treasure Island and so many others. I see that in in your writing definitely, but it, again it's it's that question where we have to make this our own thing instead of retelling Treasure Island, we've got to go someplace ourselves, right exactly and thank you for that compliment that was wonderful <laughs> uh <laughs> so uh sherlock holmes i was actually reading it while i was writing this book because like okay author uh the author conan doyle was writing this in the exact time period that i am trying to write it as well so this will help me with the um, how things worked, what things were actually like, um, just everything in that culture, I feel like, were in his his stories of Sherlock Holmes, plus how Sherlock thought, how things worked. Um, so it really helped me with the kind of like the thriller, mystery aspect of the book as well, keeping people on the edge of their seat thinking, okay, what if it's this? What if this person is this? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, here's another thing, too. Now, we talked briefly about the Underground Railroad, and that's certainly where I live in Pennsylvania. There's a, there's so much history of that, and you talked about, uh, uh, you know, the all of that sort of thing. Uh, you noted in your biography, one of your descendants was a minister before and during the Civil War. That must have played into the narrative, and tell us about this man. Oh, yes. So... Uh, Mr. Foster Pierce was a minister, as said, and he was known as a very kind man. He was always, uh, whenever you found him, he was always praying to God. He was very gentle. And he would go on the plantations where the slaves were working, uh, and he would minister to them. He saved so many of them, and he actually was he actually made it allowed for them to go come into church. Uh, with him so they could pray and they could be they could be introduced to the church themselves, which is a huge step forward. So just being able to do that besides saving them and 
I thought he was just an incredible person, and he's probably someone in my family uh, that I am the most proud of, and we have a very long line, I will say that, with many cool people, but I'm probably the proudest of him for what he's done. Mm -hmm. Now, did he help bring slaves to the north? Did he help them escape, or was this more of he was trying to protect them in another way? There is no account of him being like uh, helping them be free in that way. I don't think uh, we have a very big book. It's called Pierces in Their Posterity. He was a Pierce, and uh, there was no account of him being a part of the Underground Railroad or sending them off to their freedom. Uh, all I know is that he saved uh, their souls. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly comes into, and it plays into the book, I think it really does, is Aspen and Laurie trying to save these folks and, and, and you know, save the dummies. And it's, uh, there's, it's not really allegorical, but there is this quest, and it just, it, it doesn't really lend to a religious bent or any kind of madness or prophecy, but it's, we're doing the right thing here. At least we think we are. And that's really rather cool. Mm-hmm. And it's that whole doing the wrong thing for the right reason thing, because mm -hmm. to anybody else in their society, they would be seen as doing a very bad and wrong thing, even though they're kind to a, mm -hmm. a class that people don't even acknowledge. And that's something that has to, I think we try to do that sometimes in our writing, I think. It's we're trying to send a message at times without being overbearing or being self-righteous about it. And um, I don't I try not to do that in my writing, but it's not a conscious effort. It's if I have something that I feel needs to be addressed and I need it, it needs to be looked at. It's like the characters are the best to do that. And they can say, here's my story. Here's my story within this book and that sort of thing. And. So far, I haven't heard too much of a backlash from it. I think it's more like, oh, okay, here's somebody I recognize. And that's another thing. We make characters that are recognizable. Even in, in another time, we know who these people are. It's like we all know somebody like, yes, I know someone like Lady Pomley. I've... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, I know someone like that. <laughs> but, yeah, um, it's amazing how you can take your life – and other people's lives and just little bits of their character and make somebody completely different in, in a book. And I think it's so much fun. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting how mm. writers' minds work. And sometimes we do things completely unconsciously. Like we could go through an entire chapter and then blink and it's like, what just happened? What did I just write? <laughs> mm-hmm. And what led you to do the self-publishing route? Was uh, did you try to find a, like a traditional publisher or an independent one, or or what what made the decision for you? Well, I definitely did my research on that, and I met with uh, a bunch of different authors, uh, children's book writers, nonfiction, fiction, you name it, and a lot of them recommended self-publishing because of how the traditional world of publishing. Uh, how it worked, how it treated authors these days, and how hard it was for a new author to be published. And it's like, okay, uh, how can anyone be published then if they're if they're not new, or if they're new? 
it's like, oh, it's extremely difficult. Uh, you have to have a certain following on social media, uh, a certain level. You have to already have an audience. And I can't imagine how hard it would be for a young person who, or even an older person, I don't know, who doesn't have a following to be published traditionally. That could be extremely hard. So also, The difficulty, yeah. You, Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, so, sorry. <laughs> Um, you also have to take care of a lot of the advertising yourself, which mm-hmm. once the book is completely published, you don't always get the final say in what they do to your book. They could take a bunch of things out. They could uh, take care of the cover and you not have the complete say in it. So it's like, okay, no, I want to have the full run of my book as well as the full amount of money that comes out from it. So that's, what I, to the conclusion I came to after uh, everyone else's review about traditional publishing as well. And I was lucky enough to have a friend who was also just starting her self-publishing journey with a place called Self-Publishing School. And mm-hmm. her and I went in there and we were able to publish our book like just a few days apart from each other. And we're so glad that we went with it because it's it's really interesting just seeing everything for yourself and getting the say-so. And fortunately, I've, Sunbury Press, our parent company, has generally been pretty cool with what I've written and what I've brought in. And I took the additional step of hiring my own cover artist. So uh, I, just, I just felt that it was, it, it was more in my own hands. Yes, I'm paying my artist Mitch Bentley but well worth it because uh, when you find someone who can just create the scene for the cover or come up with the idea that you didn't see it's like because a cover really does make a book and for example your cover you you're, you here's here you, the heroes are right on the cover and you can get an idea that some you know what we're getting into now was the who did you do the cover yourself no, I did not. Um, I want to do my future covers myself, but because of sci-fi steampunk books uh, are generally not hand-painted, uh, they mostly look like this. There's real people, real pictures, that kind of stuff. Um, so I had to get – also, I wanted to make sure that the cover looked right. So I actually got a, a cover company, 100 Covers. They're pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um I'd say from what I got, and because uh, I knew that they they know covers, they know exactly what is good out there, and they'll be able to take care of it. And they definitely did because I love it. It looks so good, and I'm so happy with just the font of Gearheart. It's like there's actual gears in the wor- in the letters. It's so cool. Yeah, that's a neat thing. Um... And we must talk now about your artwork because uh, your website has some fantastic work on there. What's, uh, how did that fit in with with all of your uh, endeavors? And what's uh, tell us about that and tell us about the kind of work that you do. So my pure art is uh, my basically like that is all my artwork. That is my company, my uh, website. Uh, you name it, that's the brand. And it is just 
purely art, no matter what it could be, because I have done metalsmithing, uh, painting, illustrations, a little bit of clay work, but also like beading and glass work, uh, just pure art. So that's what I wanted kind of to, I wanted to kind of portray. Um, but for the most part on my website, it's illustrations and my paintings, which uh, encompass a lot around nature, especially uh, the ocean and underwater. And uh, a main focus is kind of just being there and mixing in the galaxy and ethereal uh, places into the into the water itself and humans in this space and for me being underwater I feel feel so much at home there and I feel so peaceful I'm very happy whenever I'm in the water or under underwater and I kind of wanted to portray that in uh, my paintings showing this very peaceful these very peaceful people uh, under the water and with a very ethereal twist to it but mm-hmm. other than that, I would say a lot of my paintings are also my dreams. Uh, my dreams are very, very important in my life because they encompass so much of it, like my writing and uh, my artwork. So much has inspired. I've been inspired by so much just through my dreams themselves. Mm-hmm. And with that, it's well. One of the great things is you remember, obviously quite a bit when you wake up. Uh, I'm one of the unfortunate ones that barely, barely if ever remembers anything with regards of, of what I do. But I, I, I've always said that an idea, basically an idea, if an idea comes back after, you know, if I, if I didn't write it down and it comes back again, it was probably a good one. So <laughs> then it becomes... So I try not to worry. I try not to get uh, too hung up or too worried about that. But no, that's that's a really neat thing. And uh, is there? Do you do like dream journals or anything like that after you wake up? Oh heck yeah! And for me, it's so important. I make sure that I have a. I always have my journal at the foot of my bed and or on the side of my bed, and I have a little notepad with a pen and pencils nearby. Uh, that's right next to my head in case I wake up, I'm groggy, but I'm still somehow able to put my thoughts or my the picture I saw in my head onto the paper. Oh, my goodness, that has happened at some weird times. It's like 4 a.m., 5 a.m., 3, what, you name it. Sometimes it's just like I'm just waking up at 8, and I write it down, and I immediately go back to sleep for two more hours, and I wake up, and it's just – it's either nonsense or it's a brilliant idea there is no in between. <laughs> well, that's cool. Well, what is um, what is next for for you? What uh, I know you're you're planning about finishing off the uh, sequel to Gearheart. Um, what what is uh, what is the near future for you? So, besides working and polishing uh, the next book, which is going to be named Soul Cogs, um, mm-hmm. I would say. I'm actually illustrating two books right now for other authors. One is Mystically Marvelous, and another one is called A Dragon's Tale. So Mystically Marvelous is a bunch of short stories, and they're very, very heartfelt. It's about um, animals and kind of how they touch us in different ways and kind of like them just bringing miracles into our lives and a bunch of different uh, 
avenues. It's amazing what the author did with her stories. And I was so happy that I was able to illustrate them because a lot of them brought me out of my usual illustrations. It's like I got to do a ship in a storm. I got to draw a a pink lion cub, which was the first time I ever did in that story, which is so much fun. Uh, But a bunch of different things. And A Dragon's Tale, uh, the next book was something that a friend of mine's father wrote, and he was looking for an illustrator, and it's like, hey, choose me. Um, but, yeah, that <laughs> one was super fun because it's, it's the old story of the knights going to save uh, the princess and the prince from the dragon uh, who's out to be the villain of the kingdom, that kind of thing. But it's really cute because it's actually a Christian story as well. So that was a nice uh, thing that the author added in. Very cool. Well, where can we find Gearheart and your work? You said your your company is My Pure Art. Where is this? MyPureArt.com, uh, just like that. M Y Pure Art. No spaces, no nothing. Uh, just like that. That's where you can find my website as well as um, on my Instagram. Uh, or Facebook, you can find the links to it. And for my uh, my book, Gearheart, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, I believe Apple Books, you can find it there, so iBooks. And you can also find it on Barnes & Noble now, on online, and not in stores yet. All right. And any advice, um, this is my last question, as always, any advice for aspiring writers or artists, What would you what would you tell them? Never think your story isn't good enough and always have people to look over it. (laughs) Don't publish it just on the first one. Make sure that you have beta readers, definitely. And don't forget to watch your movies. That can actually help you out a lot. All right. Well, Michelle, thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed this. I really appreciate it, and best of luck. Thanks so much for having me. All right. You have been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the Brown Posey releases A Moment in the Sun, Live from the Cafe, and Searching for Roy Buchanan. The latter sequel, Call It Love, is set for release later this year. Thank you for being with us. Until next time, this is the Book Speak Network. Mm-hmm.